Nice to see you all again. I'd like to talk tonight on uh, the topic of from ego to expansiveness, which is a description of the unfolding of the meditation practice, the development of insight over time. And the talk, in a way, is a complement to the guided meditation that we did this morning on developing an expansive awareness. So we start off working with this question of ego. And this term ego is very central to uh, meditation practice and a very fertile ground for inquiry, looking into what constitutes the ego. And I'll say just right now what I mean by this word ego. It's really the sense of self or the sense of I that we have in life. Express it many, many times during the day. I feel this. I want that. My body is this way. My mind is that way. So we use this I, me, my sense incessantly without um, in the beginning ever stopping to think what it means where it comes from. So I'd like to talk about this sense of self, the sense of I, how it manifests in the practice, and how the experience of it changes over time in meditation. First of all, I'd like to look at the nature of the ego on what I'd call a fairly gross level. And in the um, gross level of the ego, it expresses itself by movements of mind movements of mind, generally expressing to some extent self-concern, self-interest. And so we um, find as we come to sit in meditation that we have a sort of endless tape of uh, desires and wants and hopes and worries and doubts and fears and likes and dislikes. All these movements of mind that... um, have been built up over years and years of habit. And if we start looking into these movements of mind and what they're um, all about, they're basically expressing a very simple principle. They incline us towards pleasure and away from pain. So all the movements of our thoughts are towards achieving more of what we consider to be pleasant, and away from trying to avoid or have less in our life of what we consider painful or unpleasant. And so you could say that um, the movement of self, the movement of ego on this growth level, is marked by uh, the factor of wanting, of desire, of volition, or will, or motive. All these terms more or less synonymous and uh, point to the I manifesting itself in some movement of mind. And what all of these movements are expressing, whether it's the positive movement of wanting, the negative movement of not wanting, they're expressing a preference. We carve out a preference for ourselves and we try to make it a reality in the world. And this is perhaps our great mistake. There's a uh, text, an old Chinese Zen text, written by the third Zen patriarch, a master called Feng Stan. And he was called the third patriarch in the Chinese tradition of Zen. His book is called the Xin Xin Ming, 
which means discourse or treatise on the faith mind, on the mind that knows faith or trust. And he, he begins this little uh, treatise in this way. He says, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. So it's this fundamental discrimination between what we like, what is pleasant, and therefore what we propel ourselves toward, versus what we dislike, what we term unpleasant, which we try to move away from. And around these two um, movements, our whole life is lived. And if you look at um, the activities of 99% of the minds in the world, they're revolving around these particular poles. So our life is really driven by this wanting and avoiding. And it's incessant. We find the incessant nature of it when we come to sit quietly and we find that the wanting and not wanting doesn't stop even though we can't do anything about it. We're sitting still for 45 minutes. We can't satisfy any of those desires. We can't move away from any of the things that are arising. And yet the mental mechanism goes on and on and on and on. And there's a constant sense when we first come to meditation of spinning. It feels like the mind is always spinning, churning, going round and round and round. And it's a bit like getting on a carnival ride. You know, one of these rides with the painted horses. And you get on, you climb on one and it goes around and around and around. Only on this one you can't get off. (laughs) You know, you only paid for one ticket, but uh, you can't find the way off. So you keep going round and round. There's a term in the ancient um, Asian traditions for this phenomenon, for this way of living, and the term is samsara. This is the realm of samsara. And uh, samsara is usually translated as the wheel of cyclic existence. Old uh, Pali term and a Sanskrit term, the wheel of cyclic existence implying that our life is somewhat like a wheel and it keeps going round and round and round and round. Now, in the East, they tend to understand this wheel in terms of reincarnation, the doctrine of rebirth, that we um, are born into this life, having been born many, many times before in the past, in different existences. We live out this life, we die, and as long as there's still some mental motion, that gives rise to another birth, another existence in future. And that wheel of being born and dying, being born and dying, goes on and on and on until we understand freedom, until we discover where freedom lies. We're bound, say the Asian traditions, to continued rebirth, reincarnation. Now, I frankly don't think it matters one bit for your meditation practice whether you believe in reincarnation or not. It makes absolutely no difference to your practice. So you can uh, take this view up and cherish it, or you can leave it at the door as you leave the retreat, and your mind will be a little bit freer. 
But there's another way to understand this wheel of birth and death from a moment-to-moment perspective. And that is that every time a new desire arises, a new self is born. That self persists for as long as the desire is in force, and when it ends, that self dies. Then, a few minutes later, or a few seconds later, however, you know, (laughs) strong your practice is, um, another self is born. That goes through its own lifetime, and it dies. So we can understand this cycle of birth and death on a moment-by-moment level. That that the, the I is being born again and again in these different forms. First, there's there's the wanting eye, you know, the eye that's sitting and wanting the bell to ring at the end of a sitting. And then there's the angry eye, the eye that is, is resentful that the pain in the knee has come just now when the mind was starting to get calm, and that lasts for a while. And then there's the, there's the hungry eye that uh, waits for the tea to be served at 5.30 when it's a minute late. All these forms of I are coming up again and again and again, lasting for a while and then dying. The thing we find when we come to meditation practice is we're not able to get off this wheel either. There's no end to these repeated cycles of desire and aversion, liking and disliking. And with each new one that arises, there's more sense of unrest, more sense of being pulled along by our desires and and aversions. So again, we're trapped, we're caught on this wheel, wheel of samsara. Over many, many years of our lives, these um, incessant, Uh, arisings of wanting and not wanting can develop into quite a tangle because they tend to get interconnected and conflict often develops. One of your desires will conflict with one of your fears. Very common experience. We want something, but at the same time we're afraid. So the um, tangle of of emotions begins to build as these um, impulses and, uh, and drives get interconnected. And let, let me give you an, an example of how, how this can work. Let's say that we have someone in their, say, teens, in their early teens, who um, doesn't feel very good about themselves, right? There's a certain degree of non-self-acceptance in that person. And then, if one doesn't accept oneself, one necessarily has the belief that others won't accept one either. And so expecting that other people won't like one, having contact with others comes to be uncomfortable. It's somewhat threatening. We sort of expect to be rejected or put down. And because of the pain involved in those relationships, we may tend to withdraw. Okay, so we've had already a movement of volition. There's a belief in us that we won't be likable, therefore we tend to withdraw from relationships by our own volition, our own motive. This is a movement of ego, of the self. But that withdrawal is painful. It leads to loneliness. Not wanting to uh, live with the loneliness, not being willing to accept that, we tend to try to escape it. 
So we develop, perhaps as an escape, an interest in something else, say a sport or our studies or a musical instrument. So there's another element of volition, wanting to get away from the loneliness, we take up another activity. Then we see that some skill is possible with that activity. We develop it more fully, and we find that we become well-known for it. And this is very gratifying. People begin to respect us for our skill, whether it's on the football field or playing the the guitar in a rock band or getting straight uh, A's at school. And then that, we tend to, um, out of the sense of, of inferiority, then we tend in our minds to build ourselves up based on that platform. We say, ah, I'm not no one. I'm actually good at something. And there arises pride. Another movement of wanting to be recognized, wanting to feel superior. And then um, as we become more proud, unfortunately we're stuck in a withdrawn position from our earlier uh, habits, we tend to be become more um, arrogant toward people. We want to show our superiority, so we start acting in a prideful way, and then people begin to withdraw from us. So, another movement of volition, expressing the need to feel superior, and it has a reaction in the outside world. We find ourselves more and more isolated, and that can become more and more painful, and in time we may take to other escapes, such as um, exploitative sexual relationships, or drugs, or alcohol, quest for more power and status, and so forth. And so over time, what initially began as just a certain degree of lack of self-acceptance gets built up into a whole persona, a whole personality, woven around these different impulses that have come along over time. And if we look into our own development, we can see for each one of us there are probably a number of such threads a number of ways that our personality has developed along similar um, volitional lines. We have created much of our own personality. Not knowingly, not intentionally, but in some way volitionally, through through our will. So we come into um, meditation and we, we bring along with us this whole web of what we call our personality, what we call the me. And we find as we begin to develop uh, the quality of awareness that that web of personality starts to be illuminated. We begin to shine a light within on that web. And the tangle that has developed over many, many years starts to unravel. Under the patient light of awareness, this whole tangle of personality starts to come out, sort of a thread at a time, bit by bit. And this is one of the uh, truly healing things about the meditation practice, is that we really can come to see ourselves clearly on that psychological, emotional level. Awareness shines the light of understanding uh, throughout our personality. And then some of this tangle starts to unravel, and with that comes a greater sense of, of freedom. This process can't really be rushed, it can't be forced, The knots that we've built up have to come out of their own accord. We just have to be there and be um, patient and be attentive. And over time, given that sort of attitude, the knots will 
Sankai. And our attitude, basically, has to be one of non-interfering. Not making any more um, attempts with our will, with our volition, with our ego, with our motives, to alter that process. But rather simply to let it take place. Just let it happen. Then we move in the, in the meditation to a more subtle level, more subtle um, manifestation of ego. We find that the thoughts and the impulses continue to go through consciousness, but a change starts to take place. And that is that the degree of our identification is reduced. We don't identify so strongly with each of the movements of mind that occurs. And this is a major change. Earlier, when we came to sit in meditation, if our mind moved, there was a movement of mind to some form of wanting. We felt as though we moved with it. This is the the state of being identified with our thoughts, with our desires. As the awareness becomes stronger, there's a sense that we can be still and the thought can move through without affecting us so much. So as the identification is reduced, there's, there's a, a sense of stillness, even though uh, movements of mind still come, even though a desire still comes, even though uh, annoyance may still arise, there's more a sense of being still within and observing that movement. We don't feel so tied to it. This is a step back from this wheel. This is sort of the first step back from being uh, taken around and around and around on this wheel of samsara. So it's an important change. And one of the things that happens, one of the reasons that that the environment here is created the way it is, as I mentioned earlier in the retreat, is to take away some of the external stimuli that make up our daily lives. So you notice one of the characteristics of the retreat environment is that there's not much going on outside ourselves that we have to relate to. We're thrown back again and again and again on our own experience. And this is very, very useful for this transformative process. Because outside, the way we kept our patterns, this web of personality, the way we kept that ball together is we could keep hooking it on things in the outside world. We'll say, um, well, you know, naturally I have desire because there are so many attractive things here. You know, I want a new car and a new house and a new stereo and a new boyfriend and so forth, of course that desire is natural. Or, um, well, of course I get angry. There are so many silly people around. You know, this person did, did that to me and then this person did that. Well, of course I get angry. We come into a situation like this and we don't find it so easy to hook our patterns on outside influences. And we start to realize the absurdity of some of these movements of mind. Of course, it's not that those movements stop because we come in here. I'm sure you recognize that by now. (laughs) Just because there's no good reason for them doesn't mean they go away. Because unfortunately, or fortunately, it's the same mind. Same mind. So we go in for um, our lunch one day and we're patiently standing in the queue like a good boy or girl. And then we see the person in front of us get to the dessert and go, one, two three, four. And we think, how could they? How could they do that? Don't they know there are ten more people still to come? And look, that's the best dessert we've had all week. 
And this incredible rage can, can boil up. Incredible. And take us over for, you know, the rest of the afternoon. Every time we see that person. And we begin to see that maybe our response wasn't appropriate to the situation. Maybe it was an exaggerated response that we had to that person. And what we're seeing is the movement of mind without the hook, without the external situation to pin it on. And so what is sort of happening in this kind of uh, process is that the personality is undergoing a reducing process. I don't mean this like a, a weight loss clinic, that it's getting slimmer, but more in the sense of a chemical sense of reduction. A reducing agent is something that breaks molecules down into their constituent parts, into their atoms. And so our personality is getting broken down into its basic components. Without these threads of thought and justification to tie it all together. So, so really we come here in order to go through a breakdown. <laughs> That's part of what we're about here. In case, well, I'm sure you recognize it by now. <laughs> and this can be a little bit disturbing. Yeah. So I came here to get together. I didn't come here to fall apart. Yeah. And uh, it, it, can, it can seem like the whole structure of our personalities is dissolving in this sort of experience. Everything that we've taken for granted about ourselves suddenly starts coming into question. Well then, you know, who am I really? You know, what, what kind of person am I? A good person or a bad person? An angry person or a thoughtful person? So the structure of ourself is starting to actually open up. It's starting to unfold a bit. And we need to have at this time, at this particular time in the practice, we need to have a good bit of faith to see this process through because it's a little bit unnerving. Everything that we thought was solid and real and that we could take a stand on in life starts sliding out underneath our feet. And we have to have faith that that process is to be trusted. We must have faith to trust and allow that process to continue because it's very helpful. And really what, what it's a movement from is from complexity to simplicity. Our personalities have gotten built up into very complex forms by um, our interactions, this web that we've woven over years and years. And when we come into a situation like this, they're getting taken back to, to the very simple forms. Just the bare emotions are coming up. Anger, wanting, loneliness, unworthiness lack of love, guilt, joy, happiness. Just these very basic emotions start coming through without necessarily any justification, any reason for being there. And at times it feels like we're quite naked, quite raw in this process, as though all the um, layers of, um, of masks have been peeled aside and we've just opened our heart and, and can be reached reached right in and felt just the bare grief or anger, loneliness, whatever, those very bare emotions start coming start coming through. And then we see that all the movements of mind that we built up around that personality don't really matter so much. That's not really important 
all the justifications that we've made for these feelings, we start to recognize that those mental states are just um, our basic nature, that we don't have to tie them together with any threads of explanation or volition or motive. And we start to see, we start to see that what we took to be ourself isn't as solid as we thought it was. We start to see that the ego, what we, what we think is me, isn't really a solid entity. You know, it's just these different mental states and thoughts arising and passing, arising and passing. We start to see there's really nowhere solid in ourselves where we can take a stand. Nothing firm. Now, you may have heard that the um, aim in, in doing a meditation practice is to destroy the ego. This is one of the common sort of buzzwords that goes around when you talk about meditation, you know, going to get in there and really destroy that ego. And um, there's a writer uh, who goes under the name of Wei Wu Wei, had something nice to say about this. Now, Wei Wu Wei is a very nice uh, Chinese name. It's three, three words or characters. The first is Wei, which means do or act or action. The second is Wu. W-U, which means not. And then the third is way, again, which is do. So his name literally is do, not do. But what he's pointing to in his name is a way of acting without motive. Acting without trying to act. So he's pointing to a way of living in the world, a way of being, which is based on spontaneity. Way, woo, way. Act without trying. Act without acting. Never mind that he's an English writer whose real name is Terence Gray. It's a, uh, it's a brilliant pen name, and he publishes his books through the Hong Kong University uh, Press, so he sort of tends to get away with it. He had this to say about destroying the ego. He said, Hound the ego and cook its goose. All well and good. But first, you have to catch it. And that's the problem, because no such thing exists. So, how can you destroy an ego when there isn't one? Right? And what he means, of course, is there isn't an ego as a solid entity. You can't ever destroy your ego because you'll never find one as a solid entity. And in fact, if we look more closely, we find out what constitutes the ego is just a quality of holding. It's only the holding in our minds that gives any sense of solidity to self. And we hold in many different ways. We hold to the past, to memories, to experiences. We hold on to the future, to ideas of the future. What I will do, what I want to do, what my plans are. We hold on to people, our parents, to lovers, to friends, sons and daughters. We hold on to views. You know, I know what life is about. I have my philosophy. I have my opinions and so forth. We hold on to our self-image. I'm this sort of person. I'm not that sort of person. We hold on in many, many ways. In all these different areas of holding, that's all that creates this sense of I. That's all there is to it. And if you want to find out where your sense of I is located, 
If you want to find out what you're holding on to, take a look at what's in your thoughts in the middle of a sitting. Right? We're just sitting here on the middle of a summer afternoon, well, sort of summer afternoon (laughs) in England, in the middle of nowhere, doing nothing. Why should there be anything going on here at all? Why should there be anything there at all? So what is there is as a result of our holding. So the key to to seeing where our holding lies is just in looking at our own thoughts. What thoughts fill our head, especially what thoughts recur? What thoughts come again and again? That's what we're trying to stand on, where we're trying to make a stand. As we begin to... um, see this, this insubstantial quality of self, we can start to let go of some of these unnecessary movements of mind. We start to realize it really doesn't matter in the middle of a sitting whether I think about um, that beach that I was on in Spain a year ago or not. It really doesn't matter if I think about the job I'm going to take up the month that I, after I leave this retreat. It really doesn't matter if those thoughts come into my mind or not. And as we, as we start to invest less in all that structure of past and future, we come upon a new element in our meditation practice, a new element in the experience, and that is the quality of space. And this, again, is an important discovery. We come upon the, the actual experience of spaciousness in the mind. And in fact, the more we let go of these concerns of the self, the more we're willing to let go of our hopes and fears and worries and doubts and likes and dislikes, the more they're replaced by nothing. Nothing takes their place. And so we come to sit and we find there's nothing happening. There's nothing going on. There's nothing here. Now, this can also be a disquieting experience. You've heard probably many, many times that um, what we're really all about in developing our meditation practice is coming upon peace. The Buddha said there is no higher happiness than peace. And yet the first time that most of us begin to taste some peace in our practice, we go, what? (laughs) Not this. Because it's not comfortable at first. It's scary. A piece is supposed to, you know, little white doves are supposed to fly through and uh, flowers rain down upon you. It's not supposed to be this vacancy, is it? Because in that kind of space, there's nothing to support the ego. There's no support for self in that. And we've always, throughout our life, we've looked for something that gave support to I to me. So, it takes some adapting to appreciate the quality of peace, to appreciate this quality of space. It's not something that I would say comes naturally for us. But, we just have to keep um, going into that state again and again and again for it to start feeling more comfortable. For us to realize that we don't have to fill that space with I, with me, with self. And there's actually nothing threatening at all in it. How could there be? 
How can there be anything threatening in nothing? So it's just really a matter of becoming comfortable with that spaciousness, with that emptiness. And then it leads into another phase of uh, the meditation, which is the development of this quality of expansiveness. And with this quality of expansiveness, the first thing we notice is, is a widening of the awareness, a widening of the attention. And um, so in the med- meditation, particularly, you, you start to realize that there are other people in the room. There are sounds going on outside. You know, we can spend hour after hour so absorbed in our own thoughts and feelings and body sensations that we forget that we're in the middle of a room with 25 other people, that there are still things happening outside, that there's life beyond the meditation room door, and so forth. So we start, once we come upon this quality of spaciousness, naturally the consciousness starts to widen, starts to broaden in this sense. And we realize something that um, Freud talked about. He mentioned that when a child is very young, as an infant, it has an, what he called an oceanic sense of self. The baby doesn't have any boundaries to its sense of self. Its consciousness is limitless. And we start to realize that over the years of our growing up, we've retreated, we've shrunk down that original infinite consciousness to become smaller and smaller and smaller until it's just focused on this body and this mind. And what has caused that shrinking of consciousness has been self-concern, has been the repeated movements of the ego, wanting this, not wanting that. And it's this preoccupation with self that causes consciousness to shrink down until it focuses on such a small corner of its whole extent. As we start giving up some of these uh, forms of self-concern, consciousness starts to return to its broader, um, original um, basis. And we find then that we're able to um, take in more of the universe with a balanced state of mind. We can be with more things. We can be open to people. We can hear the sounds. We can see the background sight. We can listen to a person without the mind being swayed by any of it. The steadiness in it. There's a nice little story about Krishnamurti that illustrates this quality. It was related to me by someone who teaches at um, his school in in, um, Hampshire called Brockwood Park. He used to teach there. He's retired now. Of course, for those of you who don't know, Krishnamurti is no longer alive. This story is from a few years ago. And a woman was getting very, very angry with Krishnamurti. And uh, they were standing outside near the vegetable garden of the school, and she was really letting rip at him. She was um, getting angry with with him at the top of her voice for minute after minute. I don't know the content of it, but she was being very, very vocal and uh, abusive with him. And uh, she kept on talking for some time, and then she started to calm down, and he replied. They had a little bit of a discussion, and then that dialogue ended. And as soon as it ended, he said, quick, come over here. And uh, he took her over to a bush that was growing against a wall, and he said, um, 
He said, I think there's a bird's nest in here. And uh, they looked behind the bush, and sure enough, there was a little nest with three little eggs in it. And um, she said, how on earth did you know that? And he said, well, while you were talking to me, I noticed that there was a little gray sparrow that flew into that bush three different times. And two of the times he had little pieces of feathers in his mouth, which I thought he was probably using to pad the nest. That's a spacious mind. Someone said about... um, an expansive consciousness that um, events don't cause the same kind of disturbance in an expansive awareness. It's like the difference between putting a, a teaspoon of salt into a glass of water and putting the same teaspoon of salt into a lake. When you put a teaspoon of salt into a glass and stir it up, the, the water tastes very, very strongly of salt. When you put that same teaspoon into a lake, you can't even tell it's there. Similarly, an expansive awareness that holds anger. You can hardly taste its presence. But when the consciousness is very narrow, when it's tight and confined, and anger comes into it, it feels like it could explode under that influence. So this expansive awareness allows us to accommodate both the inner and the outer changes of life without being so shaken by them, without being so disturbed lends greatly to the accommodating quality of mind. So basically, as we become more grounded in this sense of spaciousness, we're less influenced by the changes that life presents, by the different pleasures and pains that come our way. And this brings a degree of steadiness and equanimity into living. Now, another very valuable thing about this expansiveness is that as the consciousness broadens out, what we took to be ourself is relatively smaller. This mind and this body are relatively less of the whole of consciousness. So this means that, in a way, the sense of self is getting weaker, is getting smaller. And as you develop this quality of expansiveness, at times this sense of self may slip away entirely. And if it does, a very, very um, useful time because understanding and insight can come from such an experience of, of, of not having this burden of self. There's one thing you can be sure of if an experience like this comes your way, and that is that in uh, fairly short order, the self will return. So, not to harbor any illusions on that score. And there's a um, nice story from the Zen tradition that illustrates this. There was a Chinese monk who had been practicing Zen all of his life. And uh, he'd been in the monastery for about 40 years. And he was now getting old, and he hadn't come upon the um, freedom that his teacher spoke about and uh, obviously manifested. Hadn't come upon that discovery. And he was getting discouraged. Thought, I've tried so hard for all my grown life. I haven't found it. It's just not going to happen for me. Um, this lifetime. So he um, decided to leave the monastery. He gave up, basically. Left the monastery and started to walk up by himself into the mountain behind. Now, at this time, a bodhisattva, uh, one of these the mythical beings in uh, the Mahayana branch of Buddhism, 
became aware of his plight and uh, decided to manifest himself to see if he could work with the old monk. So he, this happened to be the, the Bodhisattva Manjushri, was a Bodhisattva of discriminating wisdom. And he manifested himself in the form of an old man who was walking down the mountainside with a heavy load of firewood on his back. And the old man was bent double under the weight of this firewood, and he was walking down the hillside with great difficulty, pain at each step. And this old monk was coming up the path, and he saw this man, and he just exchanged a short glance with him, and and he thought there's something different about this man. This person knows. He just saw it in his eyes. And so he stopped and he said, what is it then? And Manjushri, in the form of the old man, shrugged off the bundle of firewood that was on his back. He stood up straight and tall, like a young man, like a man in his twenties. And at that moment, the monk saw. He had that insight that brought him the freedom, the understanding that he was looking for. He saw what it was to live without the weight, the burden of self, which is what Manjushri was trying to teach him. He got it. And so at that moment he said, Oh, he said, and then what? And at that point Manjushri reached down, picked the firewood, put it back on his back, bent double under the weight, and walked off slowly down the hill again, taking up again the burden of self, but no longer believing in it, no longer feeling that it's solid, that it's a solid entity. Because when we have the mind of of expansiveness, we see the self in a new light. And with this expansive awareness, you may come upon a different kind of experience, a different um, quality than you might have thought was possible. For instance, it's possible in developing this expansive awareness to um, feel a great sense of calm. Because with this widening of consciousness, one taps into just the underlying stillness of, of existence. At the same time, the mind can keep moving. Desires can arise, fears, likes, dislikes, and so forth. So there can be, at the same time, a sense of great calm from the expansiveness and a sense of agitation from the fact that the emotions are still alive and working. So this is an unusual thing. I wasn't quite prepared for it when... Um, I first came upon I didn't know that you could be both calm and agitated at the same time. So it threw me for a minute. Now, if this comes about, one has a choice. One can stay with the, ad- with the calmness in its breath, or one can focus on the agitation. And I'd say what is most helpful at these times is to stay with the calmness. Keep the focus open and wide with that, that underlying sense of stillness, and just let the agitation exist within that. Because what has happened in the past is that time and time again, though we may have felt a moment of peace, the self has arisen and called out. It calls out with its worries, with its fears, with its hopes, with its wants, with its dislikes. And every time it's called, we've come running. Like an attentive mother, you know, who's attending to her fragile baby, We've answered to the ego's cries with our care and attention. And what that has done is to um, reinforce that sense of need, of wanting, 
of fearing, and so forth. Seeing the ego's call from this point of expansiveness, we can develop a new relationship to it. We can let the cries be there, but we don't have to take them so seriously. Because we start to see that it's not a matter of life and death. These wants and hopes and fears, past and future and so forth. We don't have to respond with agitation, with more self-concern to these cries. And it's as though the ego and all of its movements seen in this context of expansiveness are like one tiny whirlpool on a whole ocean of life. There's the whole ocean of existence, vast and infinite. And all we've gotten concerned about 99% of the time is this one tiny whirlpool in this one small corner of the ocean of wanting. When we start to see it in this way, we can see the ego's needs and its wants with a quality of dispassion. We no longer feel passionately about them. We're no longer compelled to respond, to answer them. Nor do we have to change them. And this is the beauty of this kind of seeing. We don't have to make every form of desire or fear or anger go away. We just have to see it in perspective and to see it for what it is. And then we're no longer bound by it. We can accommodate those movements of mind while still being grounded in an overall sense of expansiveness and calm and peace. This movement begins in meditation with being completely enwrapped in this web of personality that we've woven through our wanting. The center that we've put together through our will and our volition and our thoughts. Moving away from that exclusive emphasis on self-concern to seeing that movement in the context of the whole of existence so that our life truly becomes grounded in a broader perspective on life. It's one of the major transformations in any real spiritual path. May all beings see into the nature of self. May all beings come upon spaciousness. May all beings live with an expansive awareness. So if we could have a moment or two of quiet time, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.